because we're going to get into, we're going to be uh, in chapter 1, verses 8 through 17. And in 16 and 17, uh, we hit the transition uh, away from Paul's introduction and into the body of the book. And as we said last week, it's primarily a doctrinal book. And it's a doctrinal book that's uh, very interesting because um, Paul uh, references a lot of things from the Old Testament. And if you think about it, um, in some of his books, as he would uh, write, he would explain uh, a lot of terms. And in Romans, you don't see that same explanation, which uh, uh, leads me to think that it's because he, he knew they had an understanding of what he is talking about from the Old Testament. Now, that would seem foreign to us in some ways because it's primarily a Gentile church. As we said, it was probably started after Pentecost by Jews uh, in uh, 49 AD. The emperor uh, threw the Jews out of Rome, the city of Rome, and uh, it became a Gentile church. And even as Jews come back, it's primarily a Gentile church. So it leads, leads me to believe that um, uh, these people, in general, had an understanding of the Old Testament. Now, in some ways that always seems foreign to me, but then it doesn't, because we know in the Old Testament, uh, when uh, we look at the uh, temple gathering, there was a Gentile court. And those who were God-fearers, in other words, Gentiles, who recognized the true God, the God of Israel as is the true God of the universe, were a part of that worship. So I think we're going to see a little bit of that here when we get to 16 and 17. So let's pray, and then we'll start. Father, we just thank you for this time. I thank you, Lord, for your word. I pray, Lord, that you help me to uh, be uh, forthright and honest. Uh, as we deliver, and that each of us here this morning would walk away with uh, a blessing from your word and something in our lives that we can look at and say that we need to add this or enhance this in our life to be found in obedience. And we'll thank you for what you do this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, last week, we, we, the one phrase that we kind of uh, settled on was faith and obedience. And we talked a little bit about, are they synergistic? Are they, are, do they work together, or are they separate? Is there faith that's, uh, that's uh, uh, exercised at, at uh, salvation? Yes. Does obedience follow? And we can say yes. But faith is never, we said faith is never, uh, never functions in a vacuum. Genuine faith always has a follow-up of obedience. And we even use the examples that we'll see sometimes in our churches, people that come, and they might come for a while, maybe even a couple years, they kind of disappear, and you just don't hear anything from them anymore. Well, it's not for us to judge and go to them and say, you're lost and going to hell. That's, that's a judgment that we, we cannot exercise. But 1 Corinthians does tell us that within the church, we are to exercise judgment. And that's a command for us to exercise judgment. And there's a good chance, uh, not, not across the board, but there's a good chance that in, in some of these cases, they never had a faith in Jesus Christ in the first place, and thus there was no follow-up obedience. 
So those work together, and Paul, I believe, places them together. Now, I say that because we're going to see more of that today in, in Paul's writing. And I think we have a proof text in that. In uh, uh, Ephesians 2, uh, 8 and 9, we talked about, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And I said, and I was so happy in our, uh, in our verses with Bible school, uh, we have those verses in there to memorize, but we also have verse 10. Because verse 10 is, is, is crucial to understanding what Paul is saying there. And it goes on, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So, the faith and obedience have to be together in our lives. If they're not, uh, we have to really question, where are we spiritually? Are we, really, are we really saved? And that can help us sometimes when dealing even with our children or young people that I did for, I don't know, uh, I, can, I can think off the top of my head, a handful of cases with teenagers that came to me when I was youth leader and said I need to get saved, and there was a profession that had already been had at five, six years old. And uh, they realized that they, they were not following that script of not only faith but obedience. So it happens. So that was something we looked at last week. We also said, yes. I disagree with you. That's all right. Right. Uh, now, Paul's writing to Gentiles here, not Jews. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't think he's exercising the issue of faith versus circumcision, kingdom, and things like that that the Jews would be looking at. But that's fine. That's fine. Nobody has to agree with me on everything or anything. <laughs> but uh, uh, I will still say that it's a it's the chicken and the egg. Which comes first? We can say technically faith is exercised in salvation, yes. But obedience follows that. And if the two aren't there, then there's, there's a question mark. There should be a question mark in our mind. So we'll go on from that first portion of chapter 1. And again, I'll stand by Ephesians 2, 8, 9 on that. That, uh, yes, we're saved by grace, by faith. But... We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. The good works have to be there with the faith. Unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. So when God sees us in salvation, he also sees us in walking in obedience to the faith. And that's why I say I don't think the two can be uh, held separate and defined that way. So we look at Romans today, uh, verses 8 through 17, and we talked about the theme of the gospel. So in Romans 8 through 12, we're going to look at the order in the Godhead. As he says here, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. And um, there again, when you look at the proclamation of faith, I don't think that's talking about uh, me coming back from, let's say, Pennsylvania, the church out there, and saying, you know what, uh, I saw all these people that are saved. 
I think what it's talking about is we see all these people who are obedient to the totality of the gospel. They're exercising that in their life. And we've had that comment come to this church many times from outsiders. But here he says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ. And through Jesus Christ. Now there's an access to God. That access in the Old Testament was, is what? We saw that last week. It's the access that comes with uh, when we see the whole sacrificial system that takes place. And we see uh, as the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies once a year. And what did he do on the mercy seat? Pardon? I heard some things. He covered it with blood. The mercy seat was covered with blood as a symbolic of the covering that's needed for God to see us. And so when he, Paul says here, we, it's, uh, I give thanks, I thank my God through Jesus Christ, I think there's an order that's, that's given it to us there. And we have to understand that it's the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the blood covering that uh, we have when we get saved that allows us to have an access to God. That's one of the reasons, you know, even if you go to uh, what was classified as the Lord's Prayer, I believe that's John 17, but the Disciples' Prayer, if you will, and the order that's taken there, our Father, which art in heaven, and we have an access to God the Father, which has to be there, because the only way we're going to have that access is through Jesus Christ. So, even as we pray, we understand that there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He is the mediator of the new covenant. So no matter if it's Old Testament or new, God's sacrifice that has to take place. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an offering. The fall of the, in, since the fall, God has demanded a proper way for, self, for sinful men to be reconciled or re-inherited, if you will, they're reconciled to God, and that's through Jesus Christ. It's through his blood. That's an understanding uh, of the gospel. And uh, during the intertestamental period, which was 400 years, there's a couple of things that took place. One is, there was always a remnant in the Jews. Even though there was no, there was no more direct communication from God, there was a remnant. That remnant understood, of course, the Old Testament. That's what they were, that's what they were taught. So it was sufficient for them to find access to God. There's another thing, though, that we're going to see in a minute here that took place during that intertestinal period, and I'll try to group them together here to save time, and that is the Hellenization that took place. Anybody know what that is? Yes. So Alexander the Great uh, came through, and as he conquered the known world, he brought everything to one language one and one culture. That was, that was his goal. So it was a common language, the Greek language. Now we can look at that and realize that that was some 400 years before Jesus Christ uh, was born and realize that that was God's work. God planning and using a, a wicked a king, in this case, but using him for the purpose of what he had when Jesus Christ came to earth and the New Testament to be written. So that took place in that same intertestamental period. And I just, I just find that just a, a marvelous blessing to realize 
that God's plan was in place, even in a dark time, if you will, for Israel, where there was such disobedience that they had broken off, God had broken off communication with his people through prophets. So this is what we see taking place in history. So faith, faith, faith was proclaimed here, and, and uh, the actions of faith is proclaimed because he says your faith is proclaimed through all the world. In other words, their actions, as they carried out their faith, as Gentiles, was being proclaimed throughout that whole known world. People were aware of that. And that's a marvelous thing when you think of, he was sitting right in the capital of uh, the Roman Empire in Rome. These, uh, these, Jew, these uh, Gentiles were. So we see that throughout the New Testament as Paul is in different areas, and he'll, com- he'll compliment them about their faith and how that's demonstrated uh, throughout the world and is, is, is uh, demonstrated to the other peoples. In 9 through 12, we see Paul's desire and commitment. Paul asserts his commitment to the gospel in, uh, of, his, of, of God, of God's Son. Let's read that. Uh, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gifts to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. So, Paul here is uh, addressing them with a desire as well as a commitment. His commitment was to come to them. That had always been, that had always been uh, held up. But there's one word here I want to take a look at. Um, As Paul tries to establish himself here with the Roman Christians, he addresses this, this whole thing of the gospel over and over. We saw the gospel of God. Here we see the gospel of his son. We also see right before the gospel of his son, look in verse 9, that says, I serve with my spirit. Now, I have no idea where to put this. Um, if pastor has insight, he can certainly speak to it. But there are those they would look at that word spirit and say that should be a capitalized spirit. In other words, it's alluding to the spirit of God rather than the spirit which is in man. And how they would address that is because the word there is, does anybody have a word there other than the spirit in their Bible in verse 9? I serve with my spirit. Does anybody have I serve with my heart? Okay. And the word there is pneuma. So I think the correct word there is spirit, in, in my opinion. But some would capitalize it and say that the Holy Spirit resident in Paul, as well as us, it would serve by the means of a transformed spirit. In other words, we as Christians and Paul as a Christian are served by the means of a transformed spirit. Our spirit is, uh, if you will, taken over by the Spirit of God. And that's why some... Some would really, uh, it was kind of surprising to me, really push the idea here that the Spirit should be capitalized. Either way, to me, it doesn't do much with the text. Now, if anybody's got an opinion on that from uh, their own study, uh, I'd be glad to hear it. But the Spirit of his Son, I serve with my Spirit in the Gospel of his Son, pardon me. That without ceasing, I mention you my prayers. 
And Paul has a desire to come, and that's what he's, that's what he's telling him here, for the purpose of having a mutual fellowship. He wants to, I'll get right to you, he, uh, he, uh, a mutual fellowship. He wants, to, he wants to bring something to them to enhance them in their spiritual life. He also wants to receive something from them to enhance himself. Go ahead. Right, and see what what um, the one concordant or one uh, one uh, uh, person I read had was that yes, it's a possessed spirit. It's our spirit has been taken over by the Holy Spirit, so it's the possession we have in the Holy Spirit. Yeah, and that's probably right, and that's why I'm not saying what I'm just giving you in case others are reading. Uh, studying on this, that is that, that that is something. Matter of fact, Doug Moose would agree with that. That is capitalized, and I'm not saying he's right. I'm just saying that that's that's something to be aware of. That is out there because I don't I don't have a I don't have an opinion on it myself because I don't I wouldn't know the language anyway. So anyway, he's he wants to he wants to give some spiritual gift, and. This is the only place in the New Testament that Paul uses that language. Uh, that, uh, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. So I don't know what that is. In 1 Corinthians, uh, uh, chapter, in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14, of course, we see spiritual gifts. All kinds of different spiritual gifts that are given to the church. And those would be, as exercise, would be acts of obedience. Obedience to their faith. That, that whole combination again. And that's in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. And uh, but I think the best understanding of that, and it would follow like with uh, Paul's writings in First and Second Thessalonians, is that it's a mutual thing. He wants to receive a spiritual blessing from them, and he wants to also give a spiritual blessing to these Christians at Rome that he's never seen. So we're going to verses 13 and 15, and... Here, we'll read, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I have often intended to come to you, but have been prevented, but thus far have been, have, having been pre prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, that whole idea of being hindered going there... Um, what hindered him? We don't know for sure. But I want to give you a little list of what Paul, what Paul went through as an apostle. And uh, in Philippi, he was imprisoned, Acts 16. In Thessalonica, he was expelled, Acts 17. In uh, Berea, he was smuggled out, Acts 17. In Athens, he was mocked and laughed at, Acts 17. In uh, 1 Corinthians uh, one, he was called a fool. And in Galatia, Acts 14, he was stoned. My point being that what, what Paul went through to present the gospel and how he was hated in every one of these towns, every one of these communities where he planted churches, and for the most part, what we read there, it would be Gentile churches. But they'd have the Jewish Jews from Jerusalem would come up to these places to proclaim that Paul was not a real apostle, 
that Paul's gospel was flawed, all kinds of things that they deliver there, and the result, not from the people in the church, but the people in the community, and probably a lot of them were, were Jews, was that he was stoned and beaten and cast out. Maybe that had something to do why he didn't get to Rome. Is because of the busyness. Now, he's writing from Corinth, and we know Corinth was a uh, church that he spent a lot of time on, not only his presence there, 18 months in establishing it, but also the, the number of letters that he wrote. We know of four letters that he wrote to the Corinthians to try to correct their behavior in many areas. And the fact that that was not, they were not obedient to the faith that they claimed. And so obedience was an issue in those churches, and in some cases... Uh, they actually ended up having to expel, we know uh, the one case for sure, sexual impurity, where they expelled people out of the church because they were not found to live a life that was commensurate with faith in Jesus Christ. So maybe that's why he didn't get there. But his obligation here uh, is is to ultimately get there. Um, The words Greeks and barbarians... Now, at the end of verse uh, um, 13, he says, among the rest of the Gentiles. So again, I think that's a proof text that he's, he's talking primarily to Gentiles in a Gentile church. But when he talks about Greeks and barbarians, what does any, anybody have a thought on that? Again, we're talking to a Grecian church. Okay, anybody else have a thought on that? Yeah, Mike. Yeah, yeah. And I think here, as he's talking to the church, he said, I am under uh, obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians. Uh, the other word there would be non-Greek, that uh, I, think, I think the NIV maybe uh, would allude to that, both to the wise and to the foolish. And I think in this context, I, I, think, I think Doug is right, because he's talking to Greek people, but there's also going to be people that are not as fluent in Greek language, Greek culture, and they are viewed as barbarians. Now, there's no place that the Jews viewed themselves as barbarians, but I don't know that that would be necessarily true of other people if they weren't fluent in Greek. Maybe, maybe the Greek people would view them that way too. But he's, he's under obligation. I think the whole, the whole thing here, and this would go along with Doug's line of thinking, is his whole idea is, he, he is ministering to everybody. He is ministering to, in this, in this culture, I think, Greeks, Jews, whoever, he's ministering to everybody. And he wants that understood by a church that he hasn't been to, that he's trying to prepare for him to get there. And uh, so I think it's a, it's a broad spread idea there. And uh, Greeks and non-Greek, yes, is used by uh, the NIV. But I think it would be to all Gentiles. And God used it to bring about a common language, the Hellenism, we talked about that, and, uh, uh, and to bring about this whole idea of a desire to preach on the part of Paul. And uh, the Greek language, we know, is the primary language, almost the only language, to write the New Testament in. And that should be a blessing to all of us, because it allowed Paul to go all over the known world, and he wanted to get to Spain, which would be part of that, which he never did get there, but it allowed him to go over all the known world and be able to preach the gospel, and people had an understanding of what he was doing, what he was saying. 
And I think that's a blessing. I guess the question we have there is, how ready are we to do that? Uh, right in our own neighborhoods, how ready are we to give out the gospel? When's the last time, uh, each of us introspectively, when's the last time we gave the gospel to anybody? You know, we, we sometimes in churches we pride ourselves in knowing a lot of stuff, but do we actually use it? Do we actually utilize it for the, God's glory? So we're going to go on to verses 16 and 17 and spend the rest of our time. This is where I want to get to. Because he says here, and, and, and a lot of this information I, I'm, uh, I'm getting help on from basically three sources. John MacArthur, Doug Moose, and Elva McLean. And uh, Elva McLean would be an old-time writer, a very conservative writer. But that's, that's where I'm drawing this from. But it makes sense to me, so I thought it was worth presenting it this way. And we see here the transition verses. Now, how many of you in your Bibles, when you look at verse 16, does not have the word for there? You don't have to raise your hand necessarily, but think about it. The conjunction. Because what I do in my Bible, like when pastor's preaching and he'll come up with something like that, I'll write it in. So I remember it. And next time I read through there, I remember to go and check. Now, why, why is that there? Sometimes I can make a note, sometimes not. But it's a conjunction because it's joining. It's joining verse 15. He's eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. And he's telling them because of the, what they're hearing from outsiders coming in talking about Paul. He's telling them, I, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. We'll talk about that. As is written, the righteous shall live by faith, or the just shall live by faith. If, we, uh, if you have uh, King James, New King James, or Revised Version, the, the word just is there. So let's, let's see if we can do something with this in the time we have left. The conjunction is there for a purpose. It's a connector. And uh, like I said, you may want to write that in. Paul continues to deliver or develop the theme of the gospel. So this is a continuation, this whole first chapter, of developing that whole idea of the gospel. We saw it in verse 1, 2, 9, 15, 16, and 17. The gospel is used. So it's repeated often enough. It should get our attention. And that was the whole purpose to the Roman church, to get their attention. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? Is it a what? Or is it a whom? Okay. And again, the primary audience here is Gentile. But, so the Jew first, in order, and then the, and then the Gentile. But let's take a look at a bunch of words here that I think are important. Um... Because many will take these verses and use them for the theme of, uh, and I'm not saying it's wrong, but the theme of Romans being justification or reconciliation or it might, or it might be uh, righteousness and these different themes. But here's something that, that I found uh, in my study really, I think, important and helpful that I... I can, I can buy into this. Let's work, look at certain words. In verse 16, let's work at the, look at the word power. Power of God. 
what is power? What are we looking at when we think of, of power? Well, in 1 Corinthians um, chapter 1, verses 23 and 24, Paul says to the Corinthian church, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom. So Christ is, is identified there as the power. The word salvation comes up next there, power of God for salvation. And we know that Simeon in Luke chapter 2 was a man who was promised by God in, in uh, verse 26 that he would not see death until he sees the Lord's Christ. That was, a, that was a promise that was given to him. And here, in Luke 2.30, he says, Mine eyes have seen thy salvation. And there's other, there's other verses we can go to, but I think there we see Christ identified uh, as the salvation. Uh, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But the next word in verse 17 is Righteousness. Now, we'll get to this in a minute, what Doug Bookman has said about that word. But the righteousness here of God, in 1 Corinthians 30 again, we go back to that, that same uh, text, and he says um, in verse 30, and because of him, that's talking about God, the presence of God, because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So, again, all those words are alluded to Jesus Christ and the person of Jesus Christ. Faith. Um, uh, it says here, faith from, uh, you know, faith to faith. I, I kind of like, I kind of like, uh, there, that, that's, that's, I've always wondered, what does that mean? But the NIV says, from faith first to last. Is that what you have in yours? From faith first to last. I think that gives us an explanation of what Paul was saying. The faith is, is, is prominent no matter when. It comes you know, in a matter of salvation. It's first to last. And we see here in Hebrews 12, 2, it says Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. Faith, again, is pointed back to the person of Jesus Christ. And in 17b, we see uh, the words here. Faith is revealed from faith to faith, or I wrote it in my Bible, faith uh, first to last. As is written, the righteous, or in the King James, New King James, and, and revised would be the just. Now, I'm not sure, I, I do not know why translators change that. Because justification is just as much of a doctrine as, as anything else. But I've always kind of held from my own reading on the, the, the word just there. The just shall live by faith. Or, as I heard one preacher say many years ago that I really like, the just out of his faith shall live. Because that brings back the idea of action and obedience to justification or to salvation. And in here, Habakkuk, uh, we have Habakkuk 2.4, we have uh, Hebrews 10.38, we have Galatians 3.11, which we covered this same phrase in Galatians 3.11, we went through there. It's said four times in the Bible, the whole idea of the just shall live by faith. And then we have life, the last word. And I'm not going to turn to it for sake of time, but John 6.51 talks about the living bread. And the words living, live, and life are all, are all given to us in that, 
in that uh, uh, passage there in John. But these words all point back to Jesus. So the issue is, is the gospel, uh, is it, is it, is it uh, how did I word that before? Is it a what? Or is it a being? Is it a human being in this case? Or a being? And I would say it's, it's, a, it's not a what, it's a whom. The whom being Jesus Christ. He is the culmination of all those things in the gospel. And all those things somewhere in scripture are related to him, even to the point of being called that. He is the power. He is the righteousness. He is the just. All those things point to Jesus Christ. So when Paul is writing this, if that is an accurate uh, uh, use of the text, he's, he's telling us uh, that he's not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God or it's Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ. Over and over, it's Jesus Christ. It's a person. It's Jesus Christ. So when somebody says, I have faith, it's in whom? Isn't that the question we would ask? We ask somebody, well, are you saved? Well, yes, I'm saved. Okay, what are you trusting? I've heard pastors say this many times, even in, in uh, a relationship to uh, somebody that's maybe questioning their salvation. And I've heard him say, well, as of today, who are you trusting? Who is your faith in? It's Jesus Christ. He's all of those things. And I thought that was, a, that was a good way to look at this and to look at the issue of the gospel. The whole thing with the Jew first uh, and then the Gentile, uh, it, it may very well be what was uh, already pointed out. Yeah, but, but the other thing would be this. I think in Romans, as Romans unfolds, Paul is developing a theological purpose here. And I think the word everyone is crucial where it says, it is the power of God for, of, for salvation to everyone who believes. And that says the Jew first and the Gentile, and then the Gentiles. And we know the Jew is given the gospel first. And we know the Jews as a, as a, uh, as a uh, family of people, if you will, rejected it. The apostles shook the dust off their feet, and they said, we'll go to the Gentiles. Peter was the first one to go to the Gentiles. So we know there's an order there, but I think along with what Paul is getting here, we'll see when we get to Romans 9, 10, and 11, is this. The Jews still have a special priority in the plan of salvation. The Jews still have that special priority. So the times of the Gentiles, which is what we are in, the church age, is the times of the Gentiles. We are in that time, but we know there's a special time coming yet for the Jew. God has never left them, and, and that's going to get answered in 9, 10, 11. God has never left them and said, okay, I'm done with you. We're just going to the Gentiles. No, he says in, in chapter 10, uh, uh, to, to, every, to anybody who believes, the Jew or the uh, Gentile, they're both, they're both welcomed into the family of God. But there's a priority that's still there in the mind and heart of God for his people, Israel, that, we're, that we will not see, I don't believe, I believe we'll be raptured out, but we'll be seen in the time of the tribulation, where God returns, and the, Jew, and the Jews return in mass to uh, Jerusalem, and finally realize that Jesus indeed was the Messiah. He was the power, he was the faith, he was the righteousness, he was all those things. 
And they've been relying on self-righteousness, self-power, and all that in, the, in their uh, religious practices. So that time is coming. So I think, I think it's legitimate to at least say that that's a, a good option for understanding that phrase there, is that Romans, as it unfolds, will show that God has a special theological purpose in his plan for salvation for the Jews. Now, getting back to Doug Bookman, and then we're, we're, we're done. Now, when Doug Bookman is here, he said something that I wrote down in my Bible, and uh, it's kind of puzzled me a little bit ever since. He said that the first word, righteousness. Now, when I talk this in verse 17, it says, we're in it, the righteousness of God. And later on, it says, the righteous shall live by faith. Uh, I will leave that as the just shall live by faith. That, for me, makes it clearer to me anyway. But Doug Bookman said the righteousness here in, uh, chapter, in verse 17 is not God's imputed righteousness, but his righteous character that's on display. His righteous character on display. And that's puzzled me, but as I, uh, as I read some of these other commentators, I think that makes some sense to me. Because God's work... Um, God's work through Jesus Christ was a display of God's righteousness. And God's work, each one of you that are saved, is a display of God's righteousness. God chose, through Jesus Christ, to bring salvation, and God chose in each of our lives to grant salvation. So is that a righteous act? Is that a part of the, can that be viewed as righteousness, as the character of God? I think, it's, I think it's legitimate at least to look at. Now, God's righteousness is on display. So Christ's work on the cross was uh, evidence of God's righteousness. It was on display for everybody to see in the world at that time. And God's work in you. So I think the combination of God's righteous work through Jesus Christ and God's righteous work in us uh, could be could be, uh, I, think, I think Doug has at least there of uh, accuracy. This righteousness is part of God's character that's on display. But I think in totality, in verses 16 and 17, we can definitely see that the gospel is a whom and, and nothing else. It's Jesus Christ. It's the person of Jesus Christ. And I think we'll see that carry on through. Is righteousness an attribute of God? Is righteousness from God? Is that a status given to us? Yes. Is righteousness done by God? Is it an imputation? Yes. But I think it's even more than that. I think it's in a totality of God's glory being on display for mankind. Any other thoughts? Otherwise, we're going to continue from there next week. Yes, Doug. Yep. Yeah. Thank you. So, we'll, uh, we'll end there, and we'll pick up next week. Thank you.